Hi, this is Against Everyone with Connor Abib, a podcast featuring my conversations with countercultural figures and presenting complex spiritual, philosophical, and political ideas in an engaging and accessible way. Well, friends, before I introduce this episode with author Brian Washington, I want to announce my tour dates. Um, And I'm very excited to announce them (laughs) to you uh, for my novel, Hawk Mountain, which comes out in the U.S. on July 5th, and in Ireland, the U.K., and Australia on July 21st. You can pre-order that book um, via all my links, wherever. You can find it in profile links and all that kind of stuff, and there's a post on my Patreon, and there's an episode of the show. Anyway, you can find out how to pre-order it. I'm really, really excited. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to meet you all on tour. So please do come. These are the dates so far. Some more dates might be added. Some more things might be thrown in, but I'm just going to say them right now. And then I'll post a graphic of this pretty soon. So here are the tour dates and the people that I'm going to be reading with, talking with, all of that. So on July 9th, I'll be talking uh, in Portland, Maine at the Print Bookstore. July 10th in Cambridge um, at Porter Square Books with horror author Paul Tremblay. Um, on July 11th in Philly uh, at the Head House Bookstore. July 12th, I'll be talking with Will Meneker from Chapo Trap House at the Rare Book Room at The Strand. That's a ticketed event, so make sure you get uh, your tickets for that event. Um, On July 14th in Amherst, Massachusetts at Amherst Books with uh, author Paul Takes the Form of Mortal Girl, Andrea Lawler. Uh, On July uh, 16th, I'll be speaking in San Diego at the book Catapult. July 18th at Book Soup with Sarah Gran, who was just on the show. Uh, July 19th, San Francisco at Fabulosa Books. July uh, 21st um, in Portland, Oregon at Powell's. And July 22nd in Seattle, Washington at Third Place Books in Ravenna with Jarrett Middleton. So, wow, holy shit. (laughs) I'm going to see some of you there. I also have events coming up in Dublin and London and probably also um, somewhere in Scotland um, and elsewhere in Ireland. But that's all just sort of coming together. Um, So... Um, if any new dates are added, I will, of course, talk about them and post them. And if you are hearing about this after those <laughs> amazing events that happened, well, it was very nice meeting you, and thank you for coming and buying the book. Um, something I am preparing myself for <laughs> is process questions. So if you've ever been to a book reading, you have definitely heard during those Q&As after people asking questions about the writing process, as if it will somehow unlock some magical key to writing. Like, when do you wake up and read? What's your writing atmosphere like? Um, How do you, you know, uh, keep going? What's the ideal time for writers to, you know, write during the day? Do you listen to music when you write? Um, What kind of chair do you sit in? Do you use a pen? I mean, just on and on. In fact, They're so ubiquitous in author interviews, I I sometimes wonder what's being gotten at. And so when I was preparing to record this episode with Brian Washington, the author of the amazing uh, novel Memorial, among other great works, um, I just kept thinking, wow, like people keep asking Brian the same questions about process. That's not to, like, go at those people. I mean, the question, I suppose, is interesting, but maybe it's not quite there enough for me. Like, what is trying to be gotten at? Process questions are so strange. And also, it's like, 
is this what we think writers have to offer is just questions about method. When in fact, um, we're sitting with these weird um, (laughs) uh, thought forms that we call characters. We're sitting with the imagination of spaces. We're trying to uh, create piece by piece forward motion, a feeling of inner motion. So, um, you know, I think this is very strange what happens when we write, but the questions aren't quite strange enough. Like, why, for instance, if someone is like talking about characters with a writer, um, do we talk about characters as if they're real people? This has always been sort of a weird question for me. Um, you know, in my novel, there's, you know, these two guys, Jack and Todd, and, you know, I'm sure I will end up saying things like, well, Jack is like this, and Todd wants this in his life, as if they're people. But the thing is, they're thought forms that live only, if they live at all, um, in some sort of active gesture within me that then um, funnels itself into living in a new way through this sort of metamorphosis of becoming a a character in a book. Um, And then the character is really just a sort of interchange of photons, of sight, of symbols on a page, of the imagination of the reader, of my will that's still somehow funneling itself through those symbols, through feeling, and then conversations. I mean, it's really bizarre, isn't it? And um, so when people say, how do you come up with your characters? What do you, you know, do it? I just, I think that there's something even weirder going on there that maybe we should address. And also, like, why do writers say things like, um, wow, writing is so hard, it's devastating, um, it really, like, breaks you open, that kind of stuff. Uh, Even, you know, Joan Didion's famous line of that, you know, we write in order to live, or write stories in order to live. I mean, these things sound so dramatic, and yet (laughs) after writing a book and then editing it and reading the audiobook, I kind of get it. I mean, I've always felt, you know, strong emotions while writing but writing fiction i think was like in, in this case especially it was a very difficult book to read i think not hard formally although there are some you know sort of stylistically ambitious or challenging parts maybe but rather i just mean the emotional roller coaster of <laughs> reading this book which is bleak and intense and i think that you know, for me going through that, I, I just felt torn down, especially reading the audiobook in the space of, you know, uh, two and a half days, essentially. It really, really wrecked me, really messed with me. So, you know, in that case, I'm creating these thought forms that are kind of like a, a nightmare. And I'm entering into this realm of these thought forms or these elementals or whatever, and just constantly having to mediate them. And I can really get now <laughs> the, the the intensity. Now, I'm sure not all writers feel like this, you know, um, and I certainly love the act of writing. A lot of writers don't even like the act of writing. I really love the feeling of writing. In fact, I feel most myself when I'm writing, probably. So um, even more than some other stuff that you might expect me to feel most myself in. <laughs> but I I guess, you know, for me that starting the thought forms, setting them in motion, mediating them, working with them, those should be questions that we ask about process. And 
you know, listening to interviewer after interviewer ask Brian these questions and ask Sarah Grant, who was on the previous episode, these kinds of questions, and probably any writer, um, I just am wondering if people are trying to break through to understand some sort of mystery um, or to engage in a mystery of some sort. And of course, it's not as if writers always know the mystery with which they are dealing either. Um, sometimes people are just good at sort of wielding the um, the ability and the capacity. I and mean, they're, they're sort of just agile and lithe as they sort of move and twist in that kind of mystery, um, rather than understanding it intellectually. And that's something that we talk about a lot on this episode. And I'm really excited to have had this conversation with Brian. Um, you know, I came to Brian's writing not too long ago, and I felt so struck by it. <laughs> it just really spoke to me, although in some ways it couldn't be more different than my own writing. In some ways, there's a lot of similar concerns here. Um, and I started this podcast because I felt lonely. I wanted to have conversations with people about the things that I really cared about. And so meeting people to have these conversations has been one of the most exciting things uh, in my life. And this is the kind of thing, <laughs> the weird process shit that I wanted to talk about. But we talk about all sorts of stuff. We talk about the way um, writers who are, you know, quote unquote, marginalized in one way or another um, are curated in a certain way so that uh, we only get to present certain themes to the world and that our fiction is reduced to certain themes. Um, we also talk about danger and sexuality and mortality and we also talk about process. <laughs> so um, by not talking about process, or maybe we don't talk about process by talking about process, whatever. Anyway, this is one of my very favorite episodes of the show. I was so excited to talk with Brian, and I'm so excited to share this episode with you. This is where I tell you to support the show on Patreon. You know, as my life is going crazy, <laughs> setting up two tours, um, two book tours, one in the US and one uh, over here, in Ireland and you know wherever else, um, your help through Patreon, that's patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib, can keep this podcast going through all of it. Um, you know, so now I'm doing all that. I have all the podcasts, other people's podcasts to do, all the media stuff to do, all the extra little writing, all the all that kind of stuff. It's like just this huge new flurry of work. So really your sustaining contribution and sustaining not just to the show, but really just to me. So please do support the show, patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. It's really easy to sign up and it's really means the world to me and keeps everything sort of running so that's it all right um come out to those uh events support the show on patreon buy pre-order my book buy brian's books and just have great and thoughtful conversations with each other okay here we go Hi, everybody. It's Against Everyone with Connor Habib. Hello, Brian Washington. Hi. Hey there, Connor. Thank you for having me. Yes, I'm very excited to talk with you. So listen, 
I think we'll just kind of <laughs> jump right into it. So something I've been thinking about so much lately, because my book is coming out, is like, I've been listening to all these podcasts and interviews with writers, and I suppose it's to be expected, and I'm not dissing on this, but like so many people ask the same kind of process questions. And I've been thinking about this a lot because they always ask you the very same process. Well, they ask everybody the same process questions, but with you, it's particularly about place and about, um, and about food and, you know, and what's your process just like. And I, and I was thinking about something you said in an interview um, where you were answering one of those questions where you said, well, look, I got to think about the ideas for Memorial. I got to think about these ideas for three years. And that just really pulled me out of the sort of process um, <laughs> place. And I thought, wow, someone focused on something for three years. Like we all as writers, like have a ton of things going on inside of us that I don't quite understand the impulse to only ask about the writing process when there's obviously so much more going on there. So I think I want to start there by talking about <laughs> the process of talking about process. I guess I'm just getting meta, but I want to <laughs> start there and just say like, look, um, you know, why, for, what do you think is going on there? Like, why is everybody just asking those questions of writers? And, I, I, but I am also feeling the tension of like, well, I don't want to overstep with the writers that I have on the show and be like, mm. ask about all these ideas that maybe also writers have no clue about. So I'm trying to find that balance. And I'm just wondering where you feel with, you know, you are in that because it's happening all the time when you get interviewed. <laughs> yeah, that's a really thoughtful question. And I appreciate how you asked it. As well, I think that I can break, and this is just me from my specific vantage point, I can break it down into like two components. The first being that I found for both books that I've published so far, and I imagine for the one on the way, the first few interviews, which is to say like the first three or four interviews set the tone for every other interview mm -hmm. that has followed as far as which questions are asked, the degree to which there is, I suppose like a kind way to put it, is like intellectual, actual intellectual curiosity behind the questions in lieu of like regurgitation of what was read before and what is deemed feasible as far as warranting conversation for like a particular project. Like for lot it is a book that has comps, which is to say that there are books like it that one could turn to and pull off of a shelf, um, off of a shelf. So the questions that I was asked for that book were pretty similar to the questions that the authors of Comps for a Lot were asked in regards to what is your relationship with your city? In what way do you feel these stories are interacting with each other? how do you come to terms with voice on the page, right? Like the comps of actual questions that were asked, which I suppose make a sort of sense given uh, that they could be pointed to or alluded to. But for Memorial, I think there are less immediate comps in contemporary American literature, at least tonally and content wise. So when talking to 
mostly straight journalists and interviewers, the safer things that they could ask about were questions like food and place and wow, it's a love story. Dude, you know, the gays are in love. Like, how is that working? And why are they doing that? <laughs> questions that, you know, like things that yeah, I, <laughs> they could, we could have like a conversation over and neither of us is going to feel like too out of pocket. I mean, it does leave you wanting for more on the author's end, but at a certain point, you know, you get used to answering like iterations of iterations of iterations of the same mm-hmm. question for better and worse. I want like, are you you should are you at the on the outset of press like have you started because i know it's it's next month so it's like quite soon yeah i mean i haven't done any actual press around the book yet Mm -hmm. but it's all lined up now so it's Mm -hmm. like it's it's coming you know like it may be in like two weeks actually is when it starts to kick off and like so i have no idea how it's gonna go i mean it's it's so funny that you're saying that about you know so the gays are in love i mean I just posted an episode today. They were recording with um, Sarah Gran, whose recent book, um, her, whose most recent book, The Book of the Most Precious Substance, is about someone searching for a grimoire that has all this sex magic stuff in it. Mm-hmm. And the most precious substance is female ejaculate or squirt or whatever, like something that we have no good word for in English, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And I asked her about it and we were just talking about it. And she said, you're the first person in all the interviews I've done that have actually asked me about that. And I was like, are you kidding? Like the book is literally mm-hmm. entitled. <laughs> the title is no, about that. I, 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 yeah, I can totally see it. You know, so I think, I mean, it, it's, I think it's maybe interesting in reference, especially to Memorial where you wrote so much about, you know, what people aren't saying that <laughs> then you have all these interviewers like forming, trying to form the negative space around an appropriate yeah. question to ask, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no i mean it's it sucks <laughs> you know on the one hand it, it sucks because you know there, there, are, there are these questions a part a big what was really fascinating to me about the project of memorial outside of like the love story of it all outside of the community of it all was what fascinates me to some extent with most every project that i'm able to spend time on and that i'm circling around a question that i'm not necessarily certain about or one for which I don't know that I'm necessarily going to come to like a concrete conclusion. And oftentimes like one that I don't even necessarily know that I want to answer concretely, you know, like what is a relationship between two very specific people or between three very specific people between like a found family? How does the relationship change as the context in which the relationship is being navigated changes? And if we have individuals who are taken outside of like the context in which like the relationship is formed and they return to it like changed as individuals like how is that going to impact like what they think is their union or the many different kinds of unions that are like extending off of what they believe is their union that was like the primary question i think that i approached the novel with and i don't think that i was ever asked about it but that doesn't negate the question for me, you know, it's still just as interesting to me. And I've often found in having the chance like to talk to readers, to, to, to talk to folks like who've read the book, these questions are top of mind for them as well. These are things that 
you know, they're thinking about as well. So it's been really illuminating to get, just get to talk to a bunch of different folks about things that may not necessarily be deemed headliner worthy for like an outlet or a publication that, you know, that wants to chat about what I'm doing. Yeah. I mean, do you think then, so when you say I got to think about these things for three years, you know, is that like, that's it? Like, that's what you were thinking. Is that what you're mulling over? Do you mean that you're reaching into, I mean, obviously you're, you're, you're writing and you're following what the characters do and say, and, you know, and then re-following them on different paths and that sort of thing. But is that primarily what you mean then? And, and I would think that that thinking extends past the three years in that case, because after the book is out, then you get to be a little less lonely with the questions because you're talking with people about them. Yeah. It's that last point is like interesting in and of itself because it's a very, it's less lonely because now I'm talking about the book. Now I'm talking about these characters. Now I'm talking about Mm -hmm. this universe that I've been sitting with for however long. And this loneliness is something that like I'm re-experiencing right now. It's the sort of thing that like, I've, you know, I'd forgotten, like I wasn't, it wasn't thinking about it. I've been living with a certain set of characters with a certain set of concerns and having the chance to explicate about that a little bit to folks that are interested is, is really gratifying. Like it's a big pleasure or pleasure, but like simultaneously, there's a very specific sort of loneliness that blooms when a text is read through very specific vicage points that may be outside of what you thought was, I suppose, I don't want to say the point, but the frame through which it would be approached, right? And it is the sort of thing that is somewhat like a little bit of like a champagne problem, but simultaneously it is, you know, something that you feel and something that can reside with you. But I think that my concerns have extended and have surfaced from project to project. I mean, I'm someone, like I say this sometimes and like people don't believe me, but I'm really only interested in like four or five things (laughs) and trying to find Oh, well, now I need to know what those are before you move on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, now that you've asked, like, I don't think I can name them. You know, I can oh, tell okay. the things that I've been saying about this. And trying to find different ways to approach those questions. I mean, from story to story, from project to project, questions about what it can mean for someone not to be okay, but to feel as if uh, they are the iteration of themselves that they would like to be, whether that is as an individual, whether that is in tandem with someone else or with other folks, whether that is in regards to their sexual life and, you know, whether that is in regard to like their work habits, whether that's in regard to their just geographic place. A lot was very much about that to some extent. And in the midst of writing a lot, I was still negotiating negotiating and navigating like my relationship with Houston specifically or generally, but probably more specifically as it related to each of those components. And Memorial was kind of an extension mm-hmm. of that in a lot of different ways. And with both books, each of the questions appears in various iterations, but it's writing on the back of like a probably more prominent or like more front facing central question, like for Memorial, like a will they or won't they stay together, right? Like the sort of through line that maybe a reader would be interested in following for 250 pages or however long. And that allows me to ask a number of other questions that are stemming off from that central question without it feeling as if though, you know, a reader has been like tricked into reading about 
you know, something that isn't as front front facing as interesting as like a romance or like what a romance is or could be. Yeah. Well, I, I, just like way back to the beginning of what you were just saying, I was thinking about, you know, when you said, well, people read for certain vantage points, like obviously it's come up. <laughs> it's interesting how, how varying these kinds of questions of identity came up and, you know, what people were asking you, because this has been on my mind a lot. You know, when I, when I was doing stuff with the marketing team for my book, I love them. They're awesome. And so mm-hmm. any of you guys listening to this, please don't take this as a slide, but like, <laughs> there were like a lot of questions about like, well, will this be queer literature? Will this be, you know, can we put like, but here's the description and it has like toxic masculinity in the description and all this kind of stuff. And I kept saying like, no, 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 I don't, I really don't want any of that, you know? And also like, I, there's an, there's one Arab character in my, <laughs> my book who grew up in Sri Lanka, but everybody else is, you know, the main characters are all just like white people grow up, you know, small mm-hmm. neighborhood. And, and so I was thinking about resisting all that. And then I saw Tori Peters who wrote Detransition Baby speak. And she said like, look, I wrote this basically, I wrote this book for other trans women and I knew what one I thought nobody would read it so that echoes something that you mm-hmm. <laughs> said, said about the memorial <laughs> yeah. a bunch of times and she was just like I thought nobody would read it but um you know what that made me do was kind of up my game because I couldn't just say this sort of normal you know like trans stuff that everybody has already said because trans other trans women would just be like this is a total bore like this is a joke to me like <laughs> so it made her up her auntie but I was thinking about that so much after she said it and all the things I'd gone through. And then I was thinking about it with some of the um, interviews I listened to with you. I like this, how do I say this? Like people that are in any sort of marginalized community or was perceived to be marginalized community, we don't ever get to write fiction. And it was something that was really frustrating to me, like going through those meetings. And, and I was just like, wow, everything is being turned into some sort of utility you know, expression of a nonfiction impulse for the people that want to connect with it somehow. And that seems so cruel to me. Like I was really, when Tori said that, like my breath was taken away when I kind of was thinking about that. I was like, fuck, like I don't get to write anything without it being like instructional about, you know, LGBT-ness or, or, you know, being Syrian or having been a sex worker or whatever, you know, and, and, um, so I was thinking about that as is the, I mean, as horrible as it sounds, like our writing process questions, like a variation of that sometimes when people don't want to go there, uh, you know, like, again, how, what's, give me the function of what you've done, you know, give me the function. There's not the artistry, not the sort of strange world that you inhabit, you know, um, with, with this book and alongside of it. And it really bummed me out. <laughs> it's a bummer. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it fucking sucks. I mean, it's, it's, it mirrors my own experience in a lot of different ways. I mean, I've stayed with the same US publisher for every book I've written. They're great. The marketing team is really thoughtful. Publicity team is really thoughtful, precise, great. And I also had to navigate questions of which of these immediately codifiable mm-hmm. terms, phrases, 
that a reader could latch on to, right, reactions to quote-unquote toxic masculinity, um, LGBTQIA plus concerns um, in, in just their totality, just, you know, there's those two uh, words, like which of these could we latch on to the text so that I don't even know if it's to make it more discernible because I don't think that's the objective so much as to like make it more algorithm friendly to some extent, you know, to make right, it more right. SEO optimizable for like a reader who's, you know, I want to read about blackness and also queerness and also masculinity and also a narrative set in a city, which in a lot of different ways is, I think that one of the bigger shocks for me and something that was fortunately less of a shock because of the guidance and the thoughtfulness of like friends who write and friends who publish is the way in which the muscles required for publication on the back end of the writing process can be entirely different from those that mm -hmm. one would utilize in the midst of like writing or like completing a book right like finishing the thing writing the thing and for me like writing the thing in order to figure out what I even think about the thing and then immediately being asked to contextualize it and to define it and create like a shorthand of and for understanding for like quite a lot of people I think that in my particular situation it was pretty exacerbated in that with you know memorial that was a book that i thought i thought i thought two people would read lot and i turned out to be wrong about that so i wrote memorial and i finished that and i was like well fuck you know maybe five or six people are gonna read this book because it is so it is so specific it is so specific and it, it has a lot of different tangents like we're switching pov multiple times the structure itself is a little bit sticky and I had just sort of prepared myself for that. So to be in a situation in which quite a lot of people were positioned to read it, it was a GMA book club. Like, and I found myself having to attempt to form a shorthand, attempt to form a language that could be definable for folks outside of like the immediate sphere of like who I felt that I was writing for, which is to say like three or four friends that would understand all the, 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 the little uh, interests, the little obsessions, the little wormholes and tangents in the book just sort of on site without needing any sort of explanation and, and finding in the midst of trying to come up with that shorthand that I really couldn't and that it was really boring and that it was a sort, sort of like violence in and of itself, you know, <laughs> to ask someone who spent however long with this very specific thing to, to flatline it and make it as accessible as possible for the widest number of people mm. as possible. So I found myself like rejecting that premise like mm. quite early on in the publicity process for the book. And I'm just really fortunate in that, like, I have a publicity team that was just like super on it and was willing to have conversations with me about what I was comfortable with because I could just find myself just not being open to that. And I found upon the book's release that I would talk to readers and the conversations that they would want to have weren't the ones that were the most immediately accessible or were 
the ones that could be condensed into tags or into log lines, you know? Yeah. And that just felt really interesting to me. And I, you know, I was actually just talking to like a friend about this yesterday, the way in which we're, it feels really, really, really fortunate and that there's just like a wave, it seems, at least in U.S. contemporary literature of queer writing that is being published, not just queer writing, but queer writing that can exist outside of like the immediate specter of like whiteness or like a reaction to whiteness or reaction to white supremacy. Like it's fascinating that that can be true. And it can also be true that while, you know, these books are being published, if a book doesn't present itself as immediately having an attachment to like one of those very condensed, very commodifiable like log lines, then it just gets fucked in the publicity process, you know? Like it becomes very hard to find in the midst of everything. Interviewers and occasionally reviewers are reticent to reach out to that book that can't be immediately defined for the largest amount of people. And it creates what feel like a really unpleasant foundation Mm. from which to like proceed in publishing like many, many, many more queer folks, right? If you're not supporting them, if you're not ensuring that their books are being read if you're not ensuring and supporting them so that for you know the long haul as far as like careers are concerned then one has to ask you know what needs to change in order to get there yeah i mean right it's like gosh i think i've been thinking about this for like a long long before i wrote my book too it's just like if the book if if a book has to (laughs) I don't expect anybody to agree with me on this point, but like if a book <laughs> has direct, a novel has direct sort of political economy utility, it's actually, I feel less likely to achieve the thing that it's setting out to do than if someone engages with the imagination honestly, and then the poli- the, the political thing would emerge from it, you know, and it's actually allowed to flow into the world in a sort of a way that just positioning it um, that way from the beginning, it doesn't quite do um and so you're right like then it ends up you end up being sort of left with these two bad options which is like okay look like you write directly or you get kind of just sort of fucked in the way that people i'm even thinking like i'm thinking even about like samuel delaney like who obviously obviously there's plenty of like philosophy and theory chips writing and it all comes out i mean however it's much it has um such intense integrity you know as far as the imagination and coherence you know and and he whatever his aims are it's not quite as you know um pinpoint direct as we might see some novels be and so i think that still like although tons of people obviously know who he is like don't you think that that kind of gets lost in the marketing shuffle like i sort of am like publishers don't know how to deal with something like that and neither do people who do interviews or neither do people and and that that loss i mean that loss is so 
strange is it strange to me or is it actually completely obvious i'm not sure but that loss no, is, is, is striking you know if, if nothing else no i mean i agree with you i mean i've found at least for me from my vantage point when a book is marketed in such a way that it's political inclinations or political leanings are, are immediately clear and digestible it seems as if though it's postured mm. in a position that you know it'll reach the maximum amount of people as possible but then you know you, you run the risk of it just being like a really shit book you know like I don't I don't know that I want you know my work to be like immediately definable and immediately digestible you know like these are questions <laughs> that I'm still thinking through and that I'm still trying yeah. to untangle I mean I think a big part of my insofar as I could call it a project the the a running theme from work to work whether it's large or small for me are the complications that can exist in the sex and love and work lives of my characters mm. and it runs a little bit counterintuitively from like an impulse that I found in publishing that everything has to be immediately understandable particularly if you're writing from outside of like what is assumed to be like the dominant vantage point like some straight white guy 60s lives in New York reads in New Yorker every week that sort of entity that is allegedly reading every book that has been published right like if he can't digest it upon a first read if it's not recognizable to him upon a first read then it's deemed illegible or it's deemed like less than or alternatively an interviewer at least in my experience will lean on to the thing that can be condensed and that can be wrought by that particular guy so that you know you reach as many eyes as possible and it's something that i've thought about with every text that i've written i mean this question of like what does it mean to like write a queer book right now right like what makes fiction queer right now what can that look like and how is that at odds with what a publisher or what an industry deems as being viable for a queer work, right? Or deems as being like immediately or significantly monetizable as far as queer work is concerned. I mean, for Memorial, the thing about it is that there's there there are no there are no named white people in, in the entire book. And in the entire book, I think that. <laughs> You going through my mental thought. I'm like, <laughs> you know, two have, really? Two yeah. have, two have, two have speaking roles, right? Uh, okay. One, uh, <laughs> you know, because he works at the, at the same job, and then there, there's uh, there, there's a woman in the grocery store who also speaks, and, and maybe there are like two or three more, but none of them are named. That's a very intentional hmm. decision, right? But I wonder how that decision with its very intentional motives figures into the language of like what is most amenable to like a queer book being marketed right now you know it's not something that appears in the summary or in you know the log line or even in most of my conversations as far as like the book is 
concern. So it always seems at, at odds, like the, these two ideas, right? like what, what can I accomplish? What can I do on the page and how will it be approached? How will it be read? And not even necessarily just by like readers or like my intended audience, because like I'm writing two and four you know, queer folks of color, like 99.9% of the time, who I'm not necessarily going to have to explain a lot of these very particular nuances or these very particular microaggressions as they appear, like there's recognition there. Um, The tension between, you know, having, you know, your own sort of like intended audience and an attempt or the impulse on the back end to like magnify that audience is or feels really palpable and I do my best to just sort of like ignore it and like cast it off but it it just creeps (laughs) up I don't know well I mean it's 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 interesting like thinking about those that like white man white woman in you know like park slope like whatever like imagined reader I mean obviously yeah sure like that's some of the demographic for a book but like the question for me is like, well, do I want to write it for them? It's that's actually not the question. The question for me is like, do I want to make them stupider? Mm, like, I don't mm, want them to be mm, dumber mm, <laughs> by the time they finish my book, mm-hmm. you know, like there's got to be some push there, you know, and it's not, not because I don't, not because I want, I'm desperate for, you know, certain people to read the book, but just because like the the world deserves books that are a bit <laughs> that are good you know yeah. so like, <laughs> sure, like one would hope I mean I I don't know like I've I've I, I mean I, I I really don't I don't know what to make of it I mean I've, I've it, it seems as if though this is an original an original idea but queer writers and certainly queer writers of color just aren't given the benefit of the doubt in that way in this mm. country at this time, at least among the major publishing sphere, you know? I mean, I, I I don't, me just like as a reader, I don't read to confirm what I already know, right. y- y- you know? Yeah. Like what most interests me is when and when an author is so open to possibility, so open to multiplicity, while still really burrowing into like whatever their concern or whatever their obsession is, regardless of the genre, regardless of like the medium or the form. And if I don't understand it, then that is a calling on me to like find a way to understand it, you know, like I want to understand it. Um, And yeah, I I don't know. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm thinking like, I'm thinking also about just, it's kind of also a problem of a, maybe this is something this is an identity thing or a class thing or just a just whatever whatever the fucking we whatever we want to name the Mm. weird powers in the world that seem to be pulling us all along and uh, you know during their crazy show um like i'm thinking about like a kind of literalism and materialism now like I, i'm avoiding the term realism because i think mm, like mm. your your novel is sort of actually i and i'd maybe like to hear how you dealt with this writing something that is a bit more realistic than what i wrote than my book um i'm thinking about like fassbender talking about 
the bitter tears of Petra von Kant, which is one of my favorite mm. fucking movies. And someone asked him because, you know, in that movie, for anyone who hasn't seen it, it's basically three, four women. Um, and they're terrible to each, <laughs> each other. And someone was like, well, this is so, you know, the way you present women is so misogynist. And he said, how do you know they're women? You know, and he didn't mean mm. that as some glib, like, obviously, I don't think Fassbender meant it as some sort of like glib, you know, weird, maybe they're trans, like comment or mm. something like that. Mm. This is, mm. A while ago, um, he probably wouldn't have used that vocabulary, but I think he... I think he just meant like, look, these are characters, like characters are not people like it just is not and the situations that happen in a movie are not life. And can you take something that emerges from it now, when you do something in genre, you know, like my book has a lot of horror elements so that that helps you somewhat evade because the melodrama and Fassbender's films are melodramatic, the melodrama you know, it amplifies something that makes people feel not quite right assigning a sort of realism or literalism or kind of materialistic idea to it. So the closest you come to, um, you know, I think doing that really is in in Bayou, um, your story with a community of Chupacabra. (laughs) Um, It's a great, it's a great story um, in lot, but I think mostly we have a much more realistic take um, and in memorial as well, but I do think you you evade somehow this kind of liberalism. I don't know if it's because of the way you use time or what. I, I'm I'm just sort of, sort of trying to think of what it is, but I do think um, that's also one of the problems: is this mm-hmm. demand for mm-hmm. a literal read of what's in front of us? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the 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 ask, not even necessarily from like a reader or an audience, but. <laughs> finally from a publisher and usually from a major publisher mm-hmm. for one to be like taught right to one to be able to walk away from attacks from a novel right from like a piece of fiction like whatever form it takes and have information or like have data that can be immediately applicable to like their lives or like their mm-hmm. friends or whatever which is at odds like- you know yeah which is at odds like with what with what I'm I'm interested in, <laughs> like what I'm trying to do. I mean, I, I think that what is really fascinating to me, and this could just be because like I I've said this like elsewhere, but like I'm I wasn't like a very big reader at all uh when when I was growing up. And the much of my education as far as like narrative is concerned was and is from film and much of like what I would do at the outset of like my initial like fiction writing forays at least was map stories and map one there were projects like in the vein of like a script as far as like trying to figure out like where beats go where scenes go and seeing like the malleability of like what can be done on screen from what is i suppose like front facing is like a realist narrative like how that can change if time is manipulated if memory is manipulated if like details are manipulated is something that's always been really fascinating to me to like take a story a love story to take a coming out story to take a a working story to take a narrative about a journey or whatever, something that could be read and navigated 
in a linear timeline, like pretty clearly. And just to muddle it up a bit, not only to complicate like the structure, but also to complicate the question of what emotional beat and what narrative beat like we're actually going to end on. You know, if I take a story or if I take a narrative that reads one way, if it's progressing in a linear fashion and the end becomes the beginning, the beginning becomes the end and everything else is, you know, sort of hodgepodge in the center of the story, then I found that like my experience of that narrative is going to be completely different than if it had progressed from A to Z in a sort of like uninterrupted fashion. And that's something, at least for me, that, you know, I took from film, you know, I just took from, from watching the work of Andrew Haig and Andrew Ahn and Edward Yang and Louis Mallet and like folks who would take scenarios or like circumstances that are or could be described as being largely mundane, right? Like largely pedestrian and in querying the structure and like altering what is remembered and when it is remembered, what is even, I suppose, the most codifiable point of like a scene. Maybe there is a scene in which two people are having an argument, but the argument isn't the point of the scene. It's where they're having the discussion or it's what isn't being said, like trying to find different points and positions of emphasis can radically alter, I found, like what is taken away from that scene or that circumstance, at least in my own experience. And that runs up also against like the notion that, you know, these scenarios like may be mundane for me, they may be recognizable to you, they may be pedestrian to both of us, but there is a reader for whom the notion of you know, a bunch of cis guys in an open relationship in a deeply cosmopolitan and diverse city is going to read as like the Lord of the Rings, essentially. <laughs> you know, it's just going to be beyond like their, you know, their sense or like their field of understanding. So that like runs up against everything else for me. But also, that's not really my concern, you know? Like, yeah. I don't know that I care about that, but that doesn't make it any less true. Yeah. No, I mean, I look. <laughs> all that, you know, sort of fuss about, you know, that some people were making about Sally Rooney's novels, I think are really like, they, they illustrate some of that. Right. Like I like, I like, I mean, I've, I've just read conversations with friends and I enjoyed it, but I thought, you know, the people that had sort of complained about it because it was so mundane and, you know, kind of white chicky or whatever. And I thought, well, one, I mean, this takes place in Ireland and like the way that (laughs) the way that these relationships play out and also the way that race plays out is obviously completely different here and ethnic, you know, um, history and all that kind of stuff. So one, that's just being lost for people that, you know, live in New York City and are complaining about, you know, it. but also like, yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily like the, the idea of saying that it's that something is boring because it's mundane or it's not um it's not going into the as you're saying the kinds of uh <laughs> the the mythic structure or whatever that sort of governs uh each of our lives that we're used to i think that that's really an unfair kind of critique and i think that it's i think that it's good that you're at once saying well a book can actually be really fucking boring um but i'm not going to take away 
you know, all its ability to excite or move someone else just because maybe I find it boring or actually it is just boring, but that doesn't mean that it's still not like exciting or intersecting with someone's soul really, you know? Yeah. 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 I mean, they're, they're different. There's so many different ways to identify with a text, you know? I mean, there are so many different ways to like identify with a world that may not necessarily specifically or generally align with your own. Like, I'm really curious, like when in, in writing horror, like in, in escaping the, trappings of like what or what could be called trappings of like literary fiction how did it feel that the world opened up for you as far as like what was possible narratively and like when it opened up Mm. did it did it feel as if though you had to like set limits for yourself or like establish like rules for yourself yeah yeah, it's, it's it's a great well I hope that people ask me questions that are that good because that's a good one. Like um, I I, like, you know, I was actually stuck um, with the book Mm. for a while. Interestingly, just to back up a little bit, I wrote, so I wrote the book as a short story, like 15 years ago Mm. um, when Mm. I was in an MFA program and then um, everybody hated it. Oh, they hated it. Um, and I was like, okay. And then, but I kept thinking about it. And then I wrote it as a screenplay. So that's the thing that's interesting for me is the way that film has informed you. Like, so I wrote it as a screenplay because I lived in LA. So that's what you, okay. You know? <laughs> and, and then as soon as it was a screenplay, I wrote it, as, I could write as a novel. I wrote a novel, I wrote the novel in six months, you know, oh, it was just okay. like, because the screenplay had been laid out and that form was so potent, but just to say, still writing it as a novel, I still got stuck, even though I had the whole story mapped out. Mm-hmm. And I was at um, dinner with Holly Black, who she writes a lot of um, YA books, but she writes books for adults or fantasy, dark fantasy. And she said, oh, you're writing a horror novel. And because I'd never seen it that way before, because I don't have, it's not like there's mm-hmm. no demons in it or you know, whatever. No, no, um, no. I, I, you know, I hadn't been able to proceed until I thought, oh, I can be as like grotesque and horrible as I want. Like I can really, mm. really, really go, you know, and why have I been holding myself back from doing that? And what kind of horror novel is it? And for me, it's, you know, it's something that I gained from Hereditary, which is supernatural film, but that mm-hmm. that's a movie, that's a horror movie about emotional suffering. And mm-hmm. so I thought, oh, this is a horror novel about emotional suffering. So what opened up for me, yeah, it was just possibility. Like it just Mm -hmm. was like, I really was holding myself back from going there, you know, really getting into the darkness. And I thought, you know, but then that also was very, very draining. Like when I was editing the book, like, and I I bet you actually have felt this way, especially with some of the stories or I don't know, maybe, maybe not, but I could not, like I actually had to email the publisher and I was like, look, guys, I can only go over this book so many times. Like it's really hard. And then I read the audio book and it, that was condensed into two and a half days, you know, of reading the book. And I was just like destroyed. I, my, mm-hmm. my boyfriend took me out for dinner, like to mm-hmm. celebrate recording the audio book. And I was just talking about horrible things that had happened to me the whole night and like just breaking down. And he was like, I really just wanted to take you out to dinner. And I was like, I know, I'm so sorry. Like this was so sweet, but I'm like messed up right now, you know? So it it, it opened up 
me, I mean, it wounded me, you know, at the same time, but it did us open up tons of possibility. And I think maybe that's actually something that happens. The moment you open up new possibility in the writing that you're doing, you, you're, you are definitely opening something in your imagination and it might be very difficult, you know, um, to, to, to deal with, I think. I don't know if that's answering your question though, but maybe it is. No, it, it, it does. I mean, the author Chang Ray Lee writes about this, like in my year abroad, like this notion that like once the world opens up to you or rather like once you're cognizant that the world is perhaps more than you know, and it can be more than like anyone can know than the problem of trying to figure out like, what is the world to you now that you have this knowledge is one that can be really debilitating. And that's one that I think about mm. quite a lot. I mean, I think that for a lot, it changed for me from story to story. And as a whole, once my editor and also a few friends on separate occasions told me that it felt like a ghost story in many different ways, right? Like, and, and it confused me initially because my sense of like what a ghost story was or like what it could be, was just like really tiny and just sort of like boxed in, but really it was a narrative about the many different iterations like of a city that had come and gone, how memory and how place can be both what it is currently, what it was, prior and what it is going to be simultaneously for an individual and just like hearing that really changed not only Mm. how I approached the book on the back end but how I approached this question of the ways in which genre can fold or like narrative trappings can fold into a story even if they exist like outside of like my own immediate understanding and I, I read the audiobook for parts of lot and I read the art, audiobook for parts of memorial and the experience for both of them was one in which I felt as if though I had an attachment like to this work but for those books I was able to create like a sort of like emotional separation, mm. I think. And that's really curious to me because like for this next thing, it's a bit more difficult. It's mm. a bit trickier and it's a bit like scarier. It was a bit scarier like too, right? Like in the midst of the pandemic and I don't think I'm going to read the audiobook for it. Then. Like, it's sort of like the notion of like reading the audiobook, like returning to it really just like, just like kind of like fucking me up because we're working on edits now. And I'm just like, fuck, like, I don't know. I'm going to talk about this. But it, it's, it's, it's fascinating. Like, this question of like when I'm like in the midst of a text or like when I'm like in a project, like I'm in it, like I am doing it, I am in that world. And I, think it can be like a really vulnerable position or like a really vulnerable state to be in and in my specific instances like it kind of has to because mm. I've found that like I have to and I mean it's, it's quite a lot of work and I was sort of like an easier way to do it but like I, there's a certain amount of like overwriting that I have to do for a project in order before like I, I have a sense of like who a character is or like who a person is and why they are the way that they are within this very specific context or the very specific like rules of the world that I'm putting on the page. And that means more often than not that I've written at least, 
you know, probably 10 or 20,000 more words as far as just like just conversation or just action and interaction than what appears in the book. And all of that work is generally done prior because it's only after I've written like a novella's length of words and interactions and dialogue for like a character or for like a specific interaction between a group of characters that I begin to have like a sense of like, okay, like this is how I don't feel like I'm as intently plotting every action so much as I have a sense of like who this person is and why they are doing the way, doing the things that, that they're doing the way that they're doing. And still, you know, you have to be meticulous about it. I've found, but it's only when I've gotten that sense of like, okay, like I know who this is or like who I think this is that I'm able to, you know, do the kind of work that I'm trying to do. And in the midst of that, that can be, that can be really hard. You know, that can be, uh, that, that can be really tough. And I wish that it wasn't, but I've, I've found that with each passing book, the only thing that has changed is the acknowledgement or the recognition that like, oh, okay, this is going to kind of be like a shitty process. It doesn't make it like much easier <laughs> for me. Like, I just know that it's going to be what it is. Yeah. I mean, I think, right. So like what the, what, the way I connect to what you're describing is like, yeah, I create these like weird thought forms that, you know, become mm, their characters. Mm. Right. And I, but I have to create them so strongly that they have to outrun me so I can just follow them and just sort of keep up with them. Cause they have to be able to surprise me like a dream, you know, like, why should I be surprised by a dream? It's bizarre that I go to sleep and mm-hmm. like something in my dream, even though it's my thoughts surprises and scares the shit out of me. So I have to create a waking dream and like run after it, which is mm-hmm. like, that's not pleasant when the dream is fucking nightmare, right? No, like it's no, not good. No. But then, um, so, you know, but all that is also just to say like for people listening and like based on what you just said, like I used to really think when writers said things like, oh, it's such a devastating process. It's so hard or whatever. I, I thought it was like, bullshit. I thought it was up. nonsense. I was like, you're not building a house. You know, yeah. there's there's so many other things that you could be doing. And then now I like, I'm, I'm here talking about how painful. It's totally <laughs> true though. Like it is absolutely <laughs> devastating. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is, it is, re- it's intense, emotional, imaginative labor. And it's like, I, I, you know, I mean, just feeling the toll that it's taken. And I mean, that none of that, I mean, I think what, I think what people are sort of negatively responding to when I was too, was like, well, right. Like you said, you're not building a house. Like I'm not, you know, going into a fucking, you know, coal mine or whatever it Mm -hmm. is, Mm -hmm. but like, yes, that does have a bodily and psychic toll too. Mm-hmm. And I'm not comparing the sort of class issues around those things, although mm-hmm. obviously lots of writers are very, very poor as well. Mm-hmm. So, but mm-hmm. but the process is like a psychic, I mean, it's a psychic fucking shock. And I did not really anticipate that. And it wasn't that until I had to start doing things at the end. On the other side, like you said, the muscles are different. Yeah. Because when yeah. I was in the book, yeah, it was hard to write. Like it ha- it was difficult but I love the process of writing. I love writing. I feel more myself when I'm doing it than almost anything else. And so it wasn't until like I had to reflect on what was down really at the end that it became really difficult. But I'm also thinking about, I just want to say something about the ghost story thing before it mm. runs away, which is I think the presence of the dead always helps. Like the fact that someone was like, Hey, like actually the kingdom of death is like really close to everything you're writing here. This, this presence, which we call absence, like as soon as you get toward that. And I mean, of course that is again, like your concern again and again, and you're writing that I see at least is like, 
what's here but invisible or what's here but not said like what is actually as palpably in the room Mm -hmm. you know and so that sort of ghost story thing when you bring in that kind of that dimension I think it's really profound I mean I I also um but I want to take up something from before about time a little bit because um I was thinking about how time really plays into forgiveness you know, in Memorial, like, there's, there, you know, the primary relationship in it, I think, right, <laughs> how do I say this, rightly or wrongly, no, I'm not going to say it that way, it can be identified pretty easily by someone's standardized abusive relationship, if someone wants to interpret it in that way. And also, we, I fell in love with the characters as, you know, as reading it, right? And there's a forgiveness that happens amongst them. And there is also, as we pursue for, I think, a lot of readers, a forgiveness that happens within us. I'm just wondering, like, is that, do you think that that's just a function of time, depth, capacity? Like, what is that? Because in another book, the the scuffle could be amplified to the center and and like, we would have two very different responses to the, to these you know these characters in each instance and so i'm just kind of wondering how you one how you pulled that off <laughs> but two like what you think of that you know in, in general this you know the the sort of space and room that's made for this kind of conflict and i'm certainly not asking you to like lay it all out there in terms of like what you forgive and don't forgive personally but <laughs> I mean, you can go as far as you want <laughs> on it you know that's that's such an interesting question and i think that it hasn't come up even once just because it is like it truly like it does never come up because it's both a messy question and a messy answer and that narratively I think is when I know that that's probably something that I, I want to see through or that will hold my attention long enough to like complete a project or you know to see like what the characters think about it and I, I think that it is a function of time and the way that time works on the page. I mean, there's a version of Mike and Benson's relationship where if only the front end or like the first quarter of the relationship as it's depicted linearly is given to a reader or in audience, a tangible takeaway could be like, wow, get out now, you know, like this right, is right. not, not, you know, you know, not, not a great situation. Just like, it's, it's an emergency. Like you need to exit. Right. And I could take the same relationship, break these instances of harm that they're enacting upon one another throughout the entirety of like a longer narrative interspersed with their attempts to come up with a language for care and what care looks like for them throughout not only like their journey but like the reader or the audience's journey as far as their relationship is concerned and where you can end up is territory that is less immediately definable or what i feel is or can be like less immediately definable i've found that if i can take a relationship and if i can take the harm in it and if i can take the care in it and if i can take 
the points at which the characters may come to a sort of conclusion or some sort of resolution or some sort of understanding and intersperse each of those components across like a larger narrative in playing with the time of it and manipulating the points of view so that the reader or the audience comes away from the text or comes away from the story without being able to pretty cleanly or terribly clearly identify, you know, is this like a good relationship or is this like a bad relationship or the relationship failed because of this particular character or the relationship failed because of this other character or some other definable force from outside of the narrative. It felt for Memorial interesting to me to attempt to write a narrative about two individuals who don't have a language for care, who don't have a language for comfort or what physical love is or the limits of physical love as they understand it, who don't have a language for one another's bodies and to track it for a very specific length of time across that relationship and then to cut major and like minor components of like their learnings of their journeys in such a way that the reader the audience is learning about this relationship in line with the characters Mm -hmm. because what feels I guess really interesting to me in writing like a sort of love story, whether it is a sort of like horror love story or just a more idyllic love story is the way in which at least in relationships that I've been in, like I'm not entirely sure of what is an important moment or like what is a definable (laughs) moment or like what is like a codifiable moment until well after that moment occurs for good or for ill. So trying to create like as close to like a simulacrum of that experience as possible and to put it on the page is always really fascinating to me right like that a reader could read about the violence between benson and mike and immediately code that as like oh that's an abusive situation like one shouldn't be in the midst of that voluntarily and Benson not recognize that or Mike not recognize that until much further on in the narrative. But because of like how the story is structured, that doesn't become like the narrative focal point as far as like what a reader is tracking from scene to scene or from moment to moment. So trying to find different ways to like complicate narrative structures so that what is garnering like the most amount of emotional weight is constantly shifting from moment to moment across a text without ever like clearly defining it or clearly saying this is how you need to feel because this is what is occurring right now in the story is always really interesting to me and i always wonder like how the narrative changes when that 
sort of like God hand from the writer that says, this is how you need to feel, right? Like this is the music that I am cueing in for this particular scene that is telling you how to feel at this exact moment. When that is removed, like I wonder like how it, it affects what is taken away from a narrative. So just trying to find different ways to, to do that is just an ongoing project, I think. Yeah, I mean, what, what a great comparison to movies, right? Because you would have the score, you know, leading you somewhere, um, in, mm-hmm. at least in, in certain big budget movies, um, definitely mm-hmm. to evoke a certain feeling around certain scenes. Um, but I'm thinking, oh gosh, there's so much like, one, the immediate, what that also means is that the immediate codification from the outside, of course, can't always be communicated to the inside, that, that we know. Um, like you can see someone treating someone else like shit and be like, you know, get out of the relationship. This is terrible. And the person be like, but I love him. I mean, we know Mm -hmm, that, mm -hmm. we know that, but also it can't actually, not only can it not communicate, but it also, it, it it can't, (laughs) it it can't always, uh, how do I say this the right way? Like it can't always like even intersect or be known like it can't mm-hmm. even do anything mm-hmm. um, it, like it, it falls away and the only person it ends up doing something to is the person who's immediately codified mm-hmm. like it doesn't you know and what effect does that have mm-hmm. on that person to constantly be immediately codifying this behavior this behavior this behavior mm-hmm. and sometimes i think like um you know <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm actually, I'm thinking of these two brothers I know who both had a piano teacher that they saw and he um, sexually abused both of them, right? And I'm, I'm closer friends to one of the brothers than the other, but I know them both. And one of them has been like carrying an anger around about it mm-hmm. his entire life. And the other one was like, no, it's not a big deal, right? Or like, I'm also thinking of sex workers who have told me about situations they've had where they've been forced um, to do things that they didn't want to do and have Mm. described things to me like, well, yeah, but I knew the hour was up. So it's like not a big deal. You know, Mm. like it's so interesting to me the way certain things play out and that the codification can't quite pin things down. And if it does in some instances, of course, it's extremely helpful and it helps us wake up to the situation we're in. But in other instances, it doesn't lead us to the right place, you know, even if it's correct. So it's such a strange, it's such a strange thing that you bring up. And then, you know, I'm also thinking about like where you distinguish in characters, but maybe also in life, I don't know, like when, when there's not language there, because you're saying, oh, these characters don't have language versus, you know, when there's not, um, there's not either responsible or, or or whatever not just responsible but any access at all to the language that actually is there like because there's a point in memorial where oh, i don't want to go too deep into it for people <laughs> but it's like you know someone's like just say say i love you to this other person mm. say i love you mm. it's like obviously those words are there and in fact they've been used before mm-hmm. um so there is language but it's there's something that's in the way of connecting to the language and how do you distinguish between when one is no language and one is like, I'm actually not accessing or the language isn't available, even though I can see it, it can't come to shore for me or, you know, whatever it is. That's such a good question. I, 
think to some extent, much of me writing the book, much of me, me writing these stories is because I don't know the answer to that question. And I think on the other hand, I'm really interested in this idea of like negative space and how it can be used visually and how to take that and put it on the page. Like how can the unsaid thing, how can the action that is implied but never like seen by a reader or perhaps described and seen by a reader but not emphasized upon how can that like contort or not even contort but like how can it impact a reader's sense of what a relationship is or like what a relationship can be I think that for Memorial from the outset I knew that I wanted to write a love story in which the love was understood in its very discombobulated form from the outset of the narrative and for which it didn't really waver for the entirety of the narrative, but the question became one of once it's you know exposed to air, is it going to survive, right? If the characters aren't able to wrap words around these actions, then what love is really going to be present for like a reader or present mm-hmm. for an audience, right? Like if I have a character whose actions, 10 different actions speak to that of someone in a sort of love without ever stating it, without ever clearly labeling it across a text, is that something that is going to like cue to a reader that you know that this connection is palpable? Whereas I feel like if I see that on screen, then I could have like an inkling of that fact, even if it isn't stated out right. That tiny space between showing and clearly defining, at least I found can really skew in a favorable way if you want it to, a reader's understanding of what is occurring on the page. Like I'm showing the thing, the thing, but like I haven't really stated it outright. You know, I'm showing you that these two characters have like a very distressing relationship, but I haven't really said it outright. And I'm positing it as a sort of love story in which, you know, they're they're attempting to do what they can to the best of their abilities at any given point in time. So how is a reader going to approach that? What are they going to take away from that? I mean, there are multiple points in the bulk of Memorial, I suppose, like the middle of it, where Mike and Benson treat one another, have actions with one another, physical violence or verbal violence or otherwise in which it feels or it's structured, at least in scene, as if, okay, they've reached the point of like no return for this particular relationship. And I found in editing the book that when I stack those moments in like a linear fashion, 
the effect that it produced for me and you know to my friends who read the book was very different from when I did this time manipulation when I moved events around it complicated this picture of this relationship even though it was essentially like the same picture you know it's the same puzzle just the pieces are moved around a little bit differently but how it is approached can be radically different and that for me at least feels like an iteration of like the reading experience right like the way in which the text is navigated right like we we're experiencing the same world but because you know the author has manipulated the contours of like their very particular world it's navigated a little bit differently and it's experienced like a really bit a little bit differently um and and that that is always I don't know. It both confuses me and it interests me and it, it makes me want to see a story through just to see what possibilities exist inside of like that manipulation of time and understanding. Yeah. I mean, it's really, I was really one of those things where you then when you start considering these things, you can realize, Oh, like I write about space and time. Like that's, yeah, that's my concern. Mm. Like what's beyond time? Like, what can I write that, that um, happens when we see time in a lot of different configurations mm-hmm. um, rather than the one that we're used to? Um, in other words, how do I even sort of transcend, maybe not transcend, but you know, I'll just say that word for now, transcend time um, and get into the new dimension. You know, what is that? And in this case, it's love, which I think is really well, you know, beautiful um, and, and different contours of love um, for me. But I think I'm all, I'm thinking about the negative space thing you said in relation to, you know, you wrote this really great essay on Montrose uh, neighborhood in Houston, which is a great fucking love Houston, by the way. It's the, it's the city that I always have to, it's like LA. I have to like tell people, no, this is actually the better one. You know, it's not <laughs> the one you thought, you know, so, um, but the, but, you know, there's a moment in that essay where you're writing about, you know, the potential of the neighborhood, all that sort of stuff and, and what it, what it offers, the sense that it offers, but also, you know, you go into the space where you're like, look, you know, we're always aware of our own mortality as queer people. And I was thinking about that in relation to the negative space you're saying, the thing you're saying, because what I was thinking about, you know, being gay and thinking like here's this this big negative space or this big thing that will never be available to me that's not there is that i'm told that 90 percent just to go to the silly figure but 90 percent of like the people that i might be attracted to will not be attracted to me mm-hmm. and to me that's actually the essence of homophobia it's not like the you know, symptoms of homophobia are, you know, um, you know, violence and microaggressions and housing and class concerns and, mm-hmm. you know, all this sort of thing. But like at, at the, at the root of it, maybe I sound really egotistical because actually in some ways I'm saying is that not enough people think I'm hot. Oh. But, like, <laughs> but, what I, but what I'm really saying is like, is the utter, the, the utter culturally designed, and enforced exclusion of certain forms of desire, you know, again and again and again, and the artificial like um, propping up of, uh, well, you don't get to be 
allowed into people's desire set. You don't get to be in that mm. pool of being able to find connectivity with people that is so vital to creating compassion and love and um, and pleasure and excitement that actually you don't get to be a part of that. And now, uh, and so I, I think about that sort of negative space too. Like, you know, when I walk down the street and I see like 20 hot, you know, like chubby, totally average Irish builders. That's like, I mean, they're just everywhere and they're so hot here, you know, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like, I don't, I'm a negative space for yeah. you know most yeah. of them. Like I, do, yeah. I literally, yeah. I don't exist. There's this like Michelle, I don't, there's this Michelle Huelbeck line about men standing next to each other. It's like cattle, you know, like they just don't yeah. even like look yeah. at each yeah. other or whatever. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm also thinking about that. So like the ways in which negative space is constantly informing life when you're, when you're um, queer in any way, like that one, the negative space of death encroaching in the form of a, a, an acute sense of mortality. And then also in the negative space of like, you know, not being included in desire, you know? Yeah. I, I think that living much of my life in Houston, living a good chunk of my life in Texas generally really I suppose it, it, it was it, it was like education upon education upon education upon education right and thinking of like that particular essay on Montrose it is the sort of neighborhood for the greater Houston area and much of my early sense of self much of my early sexual education much of my early sense of the literal space that I took and take up was formed and sort of like reformed and at the very least like a foundation for it was established within that particular neighborhood particularly someone who didn't have queer visible or out queer visibility when I was growing up to find myself in a space which you know it's not not that big like a, a neighborhood in which my sense of okay what constitutes value what constitutes pleasure what constitutes being worth a person or people's time was both to a gain and to a detriment or both simultaneously formed and reformed was useful i think for me or i don't know that i even call it useful i would just say that it is like it is a thing that happened right to be able to see okay here's where i exist as a queer person within what you know is largely understood to be a queer space and i may be marginalizing outside of that space but i'm further marginalized because of body type for like a copy person or probably code is like cop but further marginalized or further driven into a sort of like marginalia by way of that further marginalized by way of many other characteristics or many other components so having a sense of where am i not visible in these spaces where Am I hyper visible 
in these spaces by way of even being construed as like a threat even and how can both of these things be true simultaneously in line with like my own like growing understanding of value and sense of self for myself that is being formed and then reformed both you know positively or you know what could be seen as being for gain and also detrimentally i mean i think that that neighborhood and i suppose queer spaces writ large that i've just had the opportunity to just spend time in and just see like where i'm literally visible and where i'm invisible and to what extent um that visibility is going to like yield uh interaction to what extent is that visibility going to yield conversation to what extent is that visibility going to yield sex to what extent is that visibility going to yield danger like having to i suppose have that constantly running implicitly like in the foreground of my interactions and actions in these spaces really can't help but inform my narrative sensibility I've found even if it can seem as if though one is largely outside of the academic context that can be applied to storytelling I mean the two are intertwined for me like I can't really separate them so they constantly appear in my work because I'm questioning them and I'm constantly questioning them because I can't figure it out for myself concretely, which I don't know is a bad thing or that, you know, I wouldn't call it a bad thing. I would just say it's a thing that is, but it's something that continues to fascinate me largely because it has continued and will continue to to play a role in my life. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's such a tangle. I mean, until we achieve utopia, <laughs> you know, we're, gonna, we're constantly going to have to redeem, you know, um, redeem the things that are difficult and painful and oppressive for us, you know, and transubstantiate them in a sense. Like when you're talking about the ways in which you are hyper visible or more invisibilized or, you know, more marginalized or whatever. It's like, I get that image of, you know, Alice in Wonderland going like, but she's in a closet, but there's just exactly tiny, it. tinier closets until she's like, you know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. And, but we all know, I mean, as, as anybody who's gone through it, it's like the closet is extremely productive place. And how frustrating mm-hmm. is that, you know, mm-hmm. to have that revelation or, just having sex with someone who is extremely sexually repressed can be extremely thrilling as well, mm-hmm. you know, and going mm-hmm. to cruising areas and that kind of thing, it brings its own. And so, so there's all that struggle and some of it's just the decision to redeem the challenge um, that's placed in front of us and, you know, turn it into something that uh, gives us strategy, value, meaning, all that sort of stuff. Um, and I'm, and uh, you know, I'm thinking about, like also just being in gay porn for like 10 years almost it was like I would always call myself a celebrity back then because I was like I was walking through the Castro and everybody like literally like five steps and people would stop me and say something mm-hmm. and then I'd get to Noe Valley and nobody knew who I was you know <laughs> it was like yeah. it was like wow yeah. this is like mm-hmm. you know I can step up it's like one side of the 
<laughs> one side of the neighborhood to the other was like famous, not famous, you know, no, it's like no. this weird thing. But aside from the fame part, it was like, you know, also the thing that was celebrated in the one neighborhood was if it were visible in the other neighborhood would have been really bad for me, yeah. you know, in, in yeah. its own way. So, um, you know, maybe not Noe Valley, but I don't, you know, who knows, but um, <laughs> get them, you know, like, <laughs> but, uh, but I, I mean, I think it's, it is, you know, it is really intense to think about, yeah, the ways well, there's a moment um there's a moment in memorial where uh, i'm referring actually actually back to a, a moment that i brought up before where someone says you know um you know just say i love you you know or say this and the character says it's not my place right but there's all there is the sense that like actually you know it's not my place is the exact place you're you should be you know <laughs> like make that your place like claim the the place where you're not supposed to be uh and i find that in my own life again and again and again like i mean i i've i've purposely done this in some ways but it's also just happened to me that i am constantly kicked out of the place where i was before so it's like okay well you know you have this you grew up in a conservative area but you're gay but you know you have like a father who is like dark enough, but has Arab features. So it's unrecognizable as like, what mm-hmm. is that to the people that are, <laughs> that I'm growing up mm-hmm. around. So, mm-hmm. you know, I don't, I don't, I mean, that's a, that's an Arab sort of condition to think about in general, which is like, I don't know what I am or which place I identify, you know, or where, mm-hmm. where I get to be. But then also, you know, being into the humanities, but studying sciences, but then being into spirituality, but then being in sex work, but then, you know, it's like this constant, like kicking out of each, you know, um, neighborhood that I could easily locate myself in. And um, that movement has given me probably more than anything, you know, I mean, it's given me so much to be exiled on purpose or by accident, you know, and then be, and one of the reasons why is because it means that if I'm able to actually stand in some confidence and, 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 you know, and worth about that, then I get to be a bridge between all of these people Mm. that normally Mm. interact, like Mm. I'm the pathway, you know, when Mm. I'm, when Mm. I'm with it, sometimes I'm just a mess and like, I'm like, don't, don't try to cross me as the bridge. I'll just fuck you up. But like, (laughs) but I, you know, when I'm with it, I get to be, you know, the bridge. And so um, I think that that's pretty wonderful, but I think, you know, also what, just hearing what you're, what you're saying, I mean, what, a that's that conflict, right? It's like, do I want to be, do, do I want to be present here or do I want to like recede into the background? And like, what it does is it leaves you in a place of there's constant longing and also constant satisfaction at the same time, you know, it was so, I mean, it's so psychoanalytic in some ways, but in some ways it also defies that. Anyway, yeah, I'm just thinking through everything you just said. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, there's a lot of pleasure that can be yielded from constantly having to negotiate these spaces, right? Whether they are explicitly sexual, whether they are implicitly sexual, whether 
they are entirely or academic, whatever that means, or whether mm. they are implicitly, I suppose, clearly defined mm-hmm. or not. I mean, it, it, and just thinking about like the idea of like, yeah, it can produce a sort of mess, right? Like it can make you messy. I am someone who feels as if though, you know, I have a foot in a number of places that are front facing as being incompatible with one another. And it creates a sort of arc or it can create a sort of like arc or a sort of trajectory that isn't as easily mapped as far as like a landing space is concerned but it's taking up space in these places nonetheless you know despite its lack of definability despite like the lack of language surrounding it you know like I found that I've learned more about myself and my sense of like my own sense of like value and how that can change so much just by being in these spaces by like doing the uncomfortable Mm -hmm. thing by being like ejected from one space and having to figure out where I could fit like what role not only I could have but like that I actually want so I guess one way of looking at it for me is that it has given me a sense of autonomy and a sense of nimbleness that I just frankly don't think that I would have, right? It would not like occur to me to like need even if there was a space or if there was a sort of like role that I could be cleanly and clearly slotted in, whether like a physical space, like who am I and what value do I have in this gay bar, in this cruising space, or who am I, or what value do I have in this university space, or who am I, or what value do I have in a sort of like media space within a larger like media Mm -hmm. economy. Like I found that my own inability and in a lot of different cases like resistance to be able to put clear language around my sort of like trajectory and my sort of like ruminations and to think of work specifically where like my fiction falls is something that I found that I like quite like I mean it's something that was very uncomfortable for me and it's something that like can be just process wise it can be an uncomfortable thing because movement can be uncomfortable but I wouldn't trade it <laughs> you know? like I, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't trade it like it's yielded so much self-learning for me it's yielded quite a lot of pleasure for me and it is for me simply 
a component of like this larger process. And in my fiction, it is a component for each of the characters to varying degrees, their respective senses of the world. I mean, I think that a major reason that so few of them clearly come away from like a piece of fiction that I've written with a sense of who or where they are, like where they slot, like what role they have in a particular arrangement of negotiation, whether it's platonic or familial, is because I myself am constantly trying to figure out what that is or the different forms that that can take. But that wondering and that inability to be able to wrap your arms around it, so to speak, while it can run counter to what like my publisher would like or like what a marketing team would like, feels as close to the business of living as I'm able to put on the page right now. And that in and of itself has value to me and feels like it could have value just like as a reading experience or like as a narrative experience. Totally. Yeah. I mean, you're just, you're reminding me of this thing that Jacques Lacan said about like, it's like one of his most famous sort of quips. And of course it has a double meaning, but it's like, you know, one must not give way to one's desire or one must not give up on one's desire. Mm -hmm. And that means not the object of your desire, but the sort of motion and the movement of desire itself and following Mm -hmm. it. Or like maybe to put it like I'm thinking of this story series that um, the writer uh, Brontes Brunel had the other day on his Instagram that was like, He's Chet awesome. Hanks. Yeah. Chet Hanks is like, you know, like uh, Tom Hanks' son who did like all the weird, like, I do know. Yeah, like, so, um, <laughs> and he was just like, look, you know that Chet Hanks would fuck you good, but like, you also know that his politics around race are horrible. And that's what makes it always wrong and always so exciting, right? <laughs> like, it is just the best. I was like, right, that's the Lacanian treaties on desire, like told in a much like funnier, like amazing way. But I just think that is it, like what you're describing and it's in your books. And, you know, I just love that this is where we're sort of landing is I'm not landing anywhere, but it's just instead like desire is, it's a movement that will take you to all these different places. If you, if you actually decide to sort of follow it and see it through, that doesn't mean it's always going to go well for you, but the, 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 the thing is not to get, not to allow yourself to get stuck, not to give way to it or give up on it, you know, and that can be for a sense of a desire for a sense of self, a desire to see a character and their questions through, or a desire to fuck Chet Hanks or get fucked by But anyway, um, listen, I could talk with you for hours and I'm so glad that we have got to have this conversation and I'm oh, so God. thankful for your writing. It's just so moving and you know i won't i won't uh lie and say that i didn't have to put the book down um, when i was reading memorial particularly and just cry my eyes out a bunch of times um and then also that it cracked me up so i mean what a roller coaster and uh 
Yeah, and I, I just really love what you're doing. Thank you so much for having this conversation. It means a lot, Connor. Thank you. All right, everybody. Uh, thanks so much for listening. And bye now. <laughs>